0: No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today.
1: Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti racist rural Canada, one rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. holidays this year, I took a connection break. That meant trying my best to unhinge from social media and work. I felt like I needed to rethink the podcast strategy and actually take a look at myself and what was holding me back, my own personal journey. I watched the documentary Deconstructing Karen with Syrah Rayo and Regina Jackson, two women of color from the United States who host dinners with white women that they call Race to Dinners. To say watching this documentary changed me would be a huge understatement. It really made me look at my own complicity, playing nice as a liberal white woman, in my case, living in rural Canada. I had to sit with my still racist beliefs My long held ingrained belief system of white supremacy that I was upholding by not naming it, upholding white supremacist capitalist ideals like beauty, weight, hustle, wealth, success, accomplishments, and sacrifice. I spent most of my life trying to chase those things and not catch them. And worse, I looked around my own rural community and thought, oh, I'm the one who gets it. I'm anti-racist. Oh, but I'm not. I've still got lots of work to do to dismantle the thinking and actively uplift and give power to black and brown women and people. And in walks Belinda Clemenson. She answered my call out, about rural authors, and rural books. And while we did talk about Belinda's book, Women, Leadership, and Saving the World, Why Everything Gets Better When Women Lead, we also talked about white supremacy, equity, intersectionality, and where we go from here. Belinda is the founder of the Women's Leadership Intensive, a change maker herself, She believes that women are not only capable of changing the world, we will be the driving force in making it happen. After more than 20 years in leadership development, she had a crisis of consciousness that her work was upholding systems that she didn't think were working for many people and values that didn't align with her own. From that realization, she set out to create the Women's Leadership Intensive or WLI: their mission to inspire, empower, support and equip women to lead the change the world needs. WLI offers leadership development by women for women, and a powerful community of women leading for positive change.: You are a rural author, and, and that's what we're focusing on. How did you land in rural Canada?
0: My family lived in Scarborough, Ontario until I was five, and then we moved to the country. And my dad's a builder, so we built a house in the middle of nowhere, and away we went. And so I grew up in a very quiet, rural environment. And I don't know, nature, nurture, uh, you know, which is the case, but it really suited me well. And so when it came time for me to put down roots somewhere else, for as an adult, it was always in my mind that I needed the space. I needed the quiet, I needed the nature and the beauty of living rurally. And I'm also a really practical person. So I love all of the, you know, the problem solving and the independence and the, uh, things that go right and things that go wrong. When you live in a rural environment, and also I think the other beautiful thing I love about it is neighbors, like you know, walking walking the dog on our road, like saying hi to people, waving the cars going by, like I don't know. I grew up that way, and so it just it just feels like a perfect fit for me. It is a
1: really different life, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really is. Your book is called "Women Leadership and Saving the World." That's a really lofty goal. Can we talk about how you came to write it? And why everyone should have it? Yes.
0: (laughs) Well, first of all, I didn't want to name it that it named itself in a way because as a quiet person, as I mentioned, I didn't necessarily set out to be that bold, but it, it it sort of needed to be said it needed to be named that. So I had been doing leadership development work for my whole career, pretty much. So 25 plus years and eight ish years ago, I had sort of a personal crisis of consciousness where I realized that the work that I had been doing was really upholding and supporting systems and institutions that I didn't really believe in and that were not particularly values aligned for me. So I was teaching leaders to lead in i'm going to say broken systems some more broken than others and i saw what they were up against and i saw um i started to really see how different the experience of women leaders were in those systems and institutions and organizations and i just couldn't unsee it anymore i used to i used to tell myself you're working for the people who are there just be with those people and do a good job for them and i could sort of sleep at night telling myself that until I couldn't anymore. And so I spent a good few years like continuing to work because I needed to you know, keep the roof over our heads and food on the table and all the things. So I continued to work, but I just paid a lot of attention to what work felt like right work for me. And to be honest, by the time I spent that time paying attention, none of it did. So then the question was, okay, what would Like, right, work, and I sort of have a, a women's leadership and a feminist history in my life, and it's that's part of the book, the story of the book, too. But what really started to come crystal clear to me as I dug into the research is that the world needs women leaders more than ever before, and the business case for why that is necessary has been made over and over again, it doesn't need to be stated again. The moral case for why it should be why we should have representative leadership I think doesn't you know we don't need to explain that anymore and the reality is we're not there you know we have never had gender equality in leadership in pretty much any decision making body or organization of our society and so i looked at all that and i said okay this is what i need to work on then and so i started developing these women's leadership development programs from a feminist perspective which is risky Going into organizations and saying, hey, we're going to, you know, look at this with a critical, critical eye and ask some hard questions and challenge some assumptions and develop women leaders to really lead as themselves. That's not the standard offering when you go in to do like a corporate training event, right? You usually give them what they want. Kind of what we we're giving them is not necessarily, it's not safe, right? It was definitely a risky thing. So anyway, fast forward uh, five years later from doing all of that work and learning so much and spending my days learning and researching and talking to women. And what I realized is that after spending all that time doing the work, there's a whole lot of people who don't understand that, right? Who don't know the data, who don't know the stats on how we're actually doing on gender equality. I don't even know them all. And I spend all my time doing this work. So for me, the the push behind writing the book was to start to share this information more broadly so that women had a context for what they were experiencing in the world. Because most of the women that I talk to think it's me. It's my individual experience that I'm having. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. And the reality is for the most part, that's not true. It's contextual, right? It's systems that are not set up for us to lead or to work or to be equal. And when we understand that, it depersonalizes it a little bit. And it's very affirming, right? It takes that sort of like, no, I'm actually not crazy. This, this is real, right? What I'm experiencing is real.
1: That's a lot. And I, I'm so excited that you, you named the systems. And I'm also going to say white supremacy because that's part of it also. And I was going to say there's an intersectionality to it all. And so how does that play into the work that you do in the book as it relates to women of color, uh, women with disabilities, uh, women 2 plus? there's so much intersectionality to that. So uh, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Whenever you're part of the non-dominant group, you get lumped together into a monolith, right? So racialized people, indigenous Uh, People, women, like whatever it is, you get lumped into this monolithic group, and of course we are not right. We can't say we can't say women as a whole are having the same experience. We know that they're not right. When we look at even the pay gap, for example, you know, we're sitting at an aggregate pay gap in Canada of around eighty-nine cents on the dollar for what men earn for the same work. We know that there's a huge range in that pay gap, right? We've got Asian and white women at the top of the the scale earning them closest to their male counterparts. And then we've got black and indigenous women at the bottom of that scale with a huge pay gap between them and white men, for example. Right. So just in that little bite of data, we can see that there are huge differences in the experiences that women are having based on those various intersections. And in the book, I talk about diversity as It's just a given, right? So we're we're talking about diversity all over the place now, which is a great thing. But it's not like diversity just arrived, right? Their diversity's always been here. It's just a fact. And what we need to do now is either tear down and rebuild, or significantly adapt the systems that we have to make space for the truth of diversity. Because right now, all of our systems and institutions are based on. white male default, right? And it does not work for the rest of us. So it's not the people that need to change to fit the systems. It's that we really need to reimagine and do the work of rebuilding systems that are actually inclusive.
1: But there are those of us that have benefited from that system. And I mean, white men, of course, at the top, right? And so they're, they're going to hold on white knuckle to that, right? To that power. And they're going to criticize every single little increment of change that we're going to try to make, or the things that we say, or the media reports, the research, they'll discount it. So, how do women emerge as the people that will? And I believe you. I believe you. I believe in that women will be the ones that. Blow apart and explode these systems and then rebuild. How do they do that? How do we do that today?
0: We've tried this approach, I think, of saying, like, well, it's not a zero sum sum game, so that, you know, if we have more equality for some, it doesn't mean less for others. And I think conceptually that may be true, but in reality, some people are going to have to share and they're not going to want to, you know, to your point about white knuckling and holding on to the power that people have. So I do think we need to be honest about that, right? Be honest about the fact that we have a distribution problem. We have a distribution problem of power, of resources, of money, culture making, like all of those things we, we, that is not currently shared equitably. And to share it equitably means that some people are going to have to let go and share There are some people who have power, privilege, resources who are doing that, and there's a lot of people, obviously, who are not. So I think we need to know what we're up against as women. The, I think, unfortunate sort of reality here is that the burden for change has always fallen on the people who have the least power and resources in the system, right? So we think about all social justice movements, right? The people who are out there doing that work are the people who already have fewer resources at their disposal, they're busier, got more other things on their plate. And I think I would love to be able to stand here and say, women, the work is done, we're there, relax but I can't say that and I won't say it to myself either right I'm in my 50s it is fully the weight I feel of like it is my job to push this system because I am at a point where I have you know enough self confidence a roof over my head a career's worth of experience behind me you know whatever those resources might be if those of us who at least have some security are willing to push on behalf of everyone then it makes the road easier. And that includes male allies. And I think we're starting to see more male allies showing up around gender equality. i have even thinking of like what we're seeing in Iran, which is horrific. And yet we're seeing men who are putting their lives on the line for women's rights there too, which I don't think we would have seen in decades past.
1: We white women have what you just explained, privilege, right? We are second tier. Basically, right, we have the privilege yeah. and power and voice that, like you say, the social justice warriors are exhausted, you know, like they carrying that burden and then you know, being passed over over and over and over again, and no one's listening to why they're being passed over. It is yeah. our responsibility, and you're right ra- i'm also fifties, I'm at the point too where I don't have any time to waste to sound this alarm and talk about this. And, but I've also had to face my own biases and my own racism ingrained. And it's not an excuse. I grew up in the system that benefited me and, and we're not talking about that much, you know, like we're talking about, Oh, you know, DEI and all of that stuff. But, we need to be vulnerable enough to look at our ourselves and and that's tough.
0: We really do. I mean, we all grow up in a patriarchal sexist, racist society. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can say that definitively in North America, maybe in other places in the world. It's not so, but certainly here it is. It's a white supremacist society. We know this, right? Look at our politicians, look at our CEOs, look at all of our leaders and ask yourself, how could we deny that we have a white supremacist, racist, patriarchal, sexist society, right? Like the writings on the wall. Yep. And so it's in all of us. So as soon as somebody says to me, I'm not sexist or I'm not racist, I know there's a piece of work that's not been done there, right? The other thing that I think needs to happen with white women, particularly, is early waves of feminism, white women tried to align themselves with white men in power, right? And be like, white men in power. And this is natural, right? It makes sense. If you do not have power, you want to associate yourself with someone who does, right? That is a way of claiming power for ourselves. What we need to do now is stop associating ourselves and aligning with white men. And we need to start associating and aligning ourselves with other groups of women, right? And reintegrating with other groups of women and with other groups in general that are working towards systems change and social justice, right? We need to be confident enough that we are safe to stop supporting and upholding the white male systems of our societies and, and know that when we bring those down, it's going to bring some stuff down on us too. There's no other way.
1: Well, and we've got to shoulder that because, you know, women of color have, Consistently been carrying that weight and not been able to trust white women, like you just That's outlined. We aligned ourselves with the enemy, basically. Like true. we and and we, you know, pursued hustle, success, quote unquote, by someone else's definition, beauty, all of these things, all of these capitalist, colonialist things. We've yeah. pursued. So that we could be accepted in that system.
0: And, right. and betrayal after betrayal, right? Of, of other yes, women. Exactly.
1: Other? Yes, exactly. We do it all the time. Yes. And and so it's designed so women divide so that we compete with one another. For what? For men's attention? Jesus, right? And for <laughs> the crumbs, right? For one seat yes. at the table. Yeah. That's That to me is also
0: what needs to really be blown up here is, you know, I'm very much for transparency and for quotas. Right? I wanna, how can we fix a problem we can't see? So if if we don't have transparency about who's who's being paid what, who has which positions, you know, all of all of that data around leadership, we we need to be able to see it if we're gonna solve it. And I think the idea that people are gonna do it on their own terms, when they have a lot to lose, it's just unrealistic. I think there needs to be pressure there, right? Like, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't have whether it's legislation or um, some kind of quotas around women in
1: leadership in politics in Canada. So I have some thoughts on that. I think that the political system itself, let's be honest, is, is capitalist and colonialist. So it doesn't work for us either. So us trying to change it from the inside, we're always going to get criticized because there's more men than there are women. And then in the public, like the perception of the public, and I'm, I'm looking at you rural communities, they are mostly white men, the, uh, economic development the big manufacturing the big farming in rural communities and and they're in power and so you know yes i agree you know that would be great if we could legislate that but i mean the liberal government tried to have parity and and you know his first government did right uh in in the in the house and uh there's been a i mean it's a clusterfuck i mean it really is don't get me wrong. I'm hopeful. I'm actually really excited about this time. I have goosebumps thinking and talking about it because it's a time of change, but we need to call all this shit out. Right. I mean, and have open conversations about them. I want to go back to, um, your book for a second, because what you said about leadership and, and being risky. So how many women have you know, New York Times bestselling leadership books. It's Tony Robbins. It's Adam Grant. It's, you know, it's white men. It's white men at the top. And and this is the society that we live in, is that men are the leaders. And so women buy their books. Anything written by a man hits the top bestseller. So kudos to you, for writing this book for women by you. And and tell me your thoughts on that whole, you know, writing a book from a women's perspective.
0: I completely agree with you and when I started the women's leadership intensive, I did all that digging in to see like, okay, how many women have written the books, right? And at that point it was like Brené Brown, that was it kind of thing. You know, and not to say I don't want to discount there's other women who are doing the work for sure, but in terms of who had the the, you know, brand name recognition, not a lot. I looked on all this, the speaker websites, you know, where you can hire a keynote speaker for the big bucks to come in and talk to you about leadership. 96% men, you know, like, so they just dominate the leadership space because, you know, if, if the systems and, and, and societies that we live in were created by men, then of course they wrote the playbook right? On what leadership is and that we're still running the same damn playbook to this day. Organizations are all built on the same principles, right? They haven't changed, which in itself is insane, right? What an an innovation gap to not even look at at different ways of building companies and, and organizations. I mean, I always think of this women in leadership as two things. One, it's getting there. Right. So, yes, we do need to change the numbers. We need to get to 50% because that's we're just over 50% of the population. So, we should be half of all leadership and decision making tables in our society. But the second thing is can we be ourselves once we get there? Because if we show up and just emulate the leaders who went before us, then the people we're emulating will be the men who went before us because that's who was there. So we need to be able to show up and share our actual experiences and perspectives and, unfortunately, fight to have those heard, right, and push on the systems. Not an easy job, right? Not, a, not an easy job. But, unfortunately, that's, that's where we are if we, want, if we want the changes to happen. I think that's what we all need to do.
1: I like the idea of circles, of wisdom circles. I think women are incredible at this because we see the value in the qualities that we lack in other women. As we age, I think, at least me, I can only speak for myself, I realize you know, what my weaknesses are and what I'm good at. And, and what I can improve on, and when you can bring together women who value each other, and I also like the indigenous way of, of having conversation is passing a talking stick, where yeah. you know it's not, not always the loudest voice, it's not always you know the the highest up the hierarchy. I wish that we could eliminate hierarchy. I don't know if that's possible. I, there's an innovation that I'd love to see somehow. Agreed. Yeah. And and so in that vein, I went to a leadership retreat, um, I want to say almost 10 years ago now. And, and you know, you, you signed up, you paid your money. And I just was like, I don't know if I belong here. There were executive directors, there were CEOs. And, you know, I didn't consider myself a leader until I went and realized. And so my question to you is, is everyone a leader? Can everyone be a leader?
0: I think everyone can be a leader. I think people can choose to step into that. And we define leadership as um, just someone who wants to have a positive impact on their environment, right? At sort of at its most simple definition. And so, of course, that could be anyone. And I also think there is work involved, right? Just like with anything, if you want to build a skill set, you have to do the work to learn. Now, the question is, who's teaching you? Right? So if, again, if we're in a society where almost everything we're taught about leadership comes from a male perspective, then we have to work a little harder to find our teachers, right to to help us learn to be the leaders we want to be, to make the changes that we want to make. So, you know, for example in in our women's leadership courses, we work very differently than you would if you showed up at a sort of traditional leadership course. And it takes a while for women to get used to it, right? Like to get used to a truly collaborative space, to be, get used to working in circles instead of hierarchies, to get used to the fact that I'm the founder of the company, but I don't know everything, right? And it is about us together co-creating that's, we're not taught that in leadership school, you know, um, MBAs, not, they're not taught that.
1: Well, even when you introduce yourself in a group of women, I was uh, on the board of uh, communi- Women in Communications and Technology, and we would have networking events. And the first thing women do is talk about all the things they do, right? To validate themselves to each other, right? Yeah. It's not about what you do in your community. It's not about you know, you as a mother or, or your role in your community or your role in your family or your clan. It's about what the definition of success is in a male-dominated corporate world. And so we're comparing each other and ourselves as we introduce ourselves to validate ourselves. and And that, you know, fundamentally is so maddening to me. Once you see it, you can't unsee it anymore. Well, and how does it feel, right? Like most of us feel
0: the, the hollowness of that mm-hmm. experience yeah. because it doesn't, it's not real connection. And honestly, whenever we're doing community building or networking, I don't even love the word networking. I prefer community building. But whenever we're doing that work together, it's not what do you do? It's why do you do it? Like, mm-hmm. why are you engaging in the things you are in the world? That is a much more interesting conversation to me.
1: Or what are you thinking deeply about right now? Yeah. You know, what are you f- reflecting on?
0: And honestly, I think reflection is one of the key tools that we use, like certainly in our, our leadership development courses. And again, it takes people a while to get used to that, right? It's is not us saying, here's your tools, here's how you use them. It's us saying, what questions are you asking and, and why, are they, why do they matter to you?
1: I love that. And I love the sound of your programs. What is something that someone can do today to make a change towards leadership and away from the systems that we are currently living under?
0: I have three things to answer that question. The first one is name yourself as a leader, right? Claim that name for yourself. Uh, Even if that's just you in the mirror, Um, even if you write that in your journal and you don't want to proclaim it to the world, that's fine. Name it to yourself. Um, The second thing is find people with similar um, ideas about leadership to what you have, because it's way easier if we do this work together. Um, If each one of us are trying to climb the mountain individually, it is lonely. And it's you know it's lonely, it's not very much fun, and it's a hell of a lot of work. So find, find the other people who see things in, with some kind of similarity or willing to go parallel journey with you. And then the last one is like find that thing that you can't not do, right? Find that, that thing that makes you so freaking mad that you cannot walk away or so passionate that you must say it. Because that's, that's the, those are drivers, right? Those are the things that will help us to stand up and take whatever risk we need to take to say the unpopular thing or name something that people don't want don't to name in a room.
1: Anything else you'd like to add? Any sage advice? I think,
0: you know, one thing I hear from a lot of women is that they didn't know that their ideas were were valid. They didn't know that the way they were thinking about the world was worthwhile. And I would say that is, that is the most precious thing, right? It is the most precious thing for women and all other marginalized groups in our society to know that the way they see it is valid and, and needed, right? We need that perspective brought to the table. It is at all of our peril to not have it, right? We all sink or swim together. And right now we're sinking.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a serious issue. We're, we're yeah. on the implosion of some systems that are not working for us anymore. And, and it's scary, but exciting at the same time.
0: I agree. I think at my core, I am an optimist. And when I see the kinds of changes that are possible, I just want more. And I want it faster. I'm, I'm impatient now. You know, and again, I think that has something to do with getting older, but it's like when people say to me, oh, well, you know, quality is going to take another 200 years. I'm like, no, no, not on my watch. I can't wait 200 years. You know, there's no way our kids and our grandkids.
1: no." Belinda, I think we could talk. Uh, for an hour. or So keep talking. But I really appreciate this conversation today. And I will ensure that we have all of your contact information. And of course, a link to your book on the website and in the show notes. So thank you so much. I appreciate your candor, and your honesty and your vulnerability.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for a great conversation.
1: Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time...